Well, hello everybody. Good evening for you know to those in London and uh, morning uh, to people that may be joining from other parts of the world. Uh, I'm Sara Pantriano, I'm the Chief Executive at ODI, and I'm really pleased um, to welcome all of you online and wherever you are today to the latest iteration of our MDB Leader Series. And I'm really delighted to welcome tonight Odile um, Renaud Basso, the President of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Um, only a few days after the EBRD had its very successful annual meeting in Samarkand. I'm sure we'll hear more about it um, in the course of tonight's conversation. Uh, but importantly, the shareholders of EBRD um, agreed to an expansion to Sub-Saharan Africa and Iraq. But we look forward to hearing more in, uh, uh, in just a, a few minutes. Odile took up the presidency of EBRD in November 2020 um, and was the first woman to head a multilateral development bank. I'm afraid I regret to say that to date she still is the only woman heading a right, multilateral you know, development bank. No, yes, 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 it's true. Yeah, <laughs> just. Um, anyway, not, not that many, <laughs> still a lot, you know, a long way to go. Uh, before um, heading the BRD, Odile was the director general at the French Treasury, where she oversaw the development of France's economic policies. Um, and she was leading on European international financial affairs, on trade policies, on financial regulation and debt management. And in, in that position, she also served as the vice president of the European Economic and Financial Committee. She was a deputy to the G7 and G20 groups and the French governor or alternate governor at the World Bank, EBRD, and the African Development Bank. She was also chair of the Paris Club. What an impressive resume um, ordeal. Um, so in tonight's event is really um, important because we will touch on a very key subject at the core of EBRD's mandate, but also a subject that is one of the most important challenges in the current debate on MDB's reform and the reform of the international financial architecture, which is the mobilization of the private sector. And I just want to put this into context and give you um, a few figures just to you know, remind ourselves of the scale of the challenge. Now, the, the IMF uh, um, estimates that public and private sector together must spend an extra 2.6 trillion every year until 2030 if we are to meet just five of the SDGs um, around education, health, roads, electricity, and water and sanitation. And the independent high-level expert group on climate finance finds that development that is compatible with climate commitments requires emerging economies other than China to spend 2.4 trillion annually. I mean, the scale is staggering if you, you know, think about these figures. And at ODI, we've done a lot of analysis on what MDBs and DFIs can do to provide more funding. And while it's self-evident that the private sector has an important role to play, the flow of capital, quite frankly, is hindered. You know, it's just not at the level uh, we need it to be. So the question that we pose in tonight is how can MDBs be catalysts for private sector mobilization? And there is no better MDB to discuss this than the EBRD, you know, that was created um, in the aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall to assist countries of operation to transition from a state command economy to a market-based economy um, with a vital private sector. And that remains to date the focus of a lot of what EBRD does. And I quote from the website, um, 
this commitment remains to furthering progress towards market-oriented economies and the promotion of private and entrepreneurial initiative. So we listen with great interest to Odile's view on this um, key issue. But we'll then, you know, sort of have a, a discussion, and we are joined um, for this discussion to explore the topic further by Manfred Shepers. Manfred is the CEO and founder of ILX Management, and that's an Amsterdam-based development finance asset management company. But Manfred has more than 30 years of experience um, in both development finance and international capital markets. And you were at TBRD yourself. Between 2006 and 2016, Manfred was the vice president and chief financial officer at TBRD, where he led on the bank's um, institutional investment partnership program. Um, after EBRD, from 2017 to 2021, uh, Manfred was a member of the investment committee of the EU's European Fund for Strategic Investment and currently serves on the supervisory boards of Dutch financial institutions. So we'll have a discussion between Manfred and Odil on uh, how we can really enhance this private sector mobilization, which I will facilitate. And then I'll open it up to the audience, both here in London and um, online. And in our strapline to the eyes, think change. So I really would like everyone to contribute their thinking on how we can, you know, further change. So please share, you know, your views and comments um, in the discussion. And, and do amplify the discussion online. Um, the, the hashtag for Twitter is MDB reform. No, sorry, it's reform MDBs. And um, so please do um, amplify the conversation online. But without further ado, let me um, now hand over to Odile. Thank you. Thank you so much for your kind word, uh, words and thank you for inviting me uh, here today. And I want to pay tribute to Suma because he he was the first one talking to me I mean, and, and launching this idea. And I think it's a great idea to be, being two London-based institutions to uh, know each other better, work, uh, work together and, and develop cooperation. Uh, I think your mission of uh, is, is more relevant than ever. And uh, it's very interesting, I mean, for us to, to partner with you. And um, we are living in a challenging world. I think from our perspective, EBRD, we see, I mean, two huge challenges and, and huge um, issues. The first one is um, the war in Ukraine and the impact it has, I mean, on security in Europe and, I mean, globally, uh, food crisis, energy crisis. And, um, and also more in-depth, I mean, the um, challenge it represents for the shared values of democracy, peace, and, and, and so forth, and justice. And the other is climate emergency. And uh, um, no need to reiterate what it means, what it represents. And, and um, uh, But I think that... Um, for an MDB now, and, and I will come back to that, uh, climate is, is, of course, uh, the, one of the key challenges. And, and it's true for, I mean, because we need to be able to support developing countries in addressing and getting ready for, for this for the challenge. And uh, um, even if they have limited responsibility in global warming, they are, first of all, I mean, very often at the forefront of the impact, but also they, they need to have policies that help mitigating um, the evolution. Um, and, and as this crisis identified, we see polarization, geopolitical tension, and uh, fragmentation. And, and for multilateral development bank, of course, this is a challenging, it creates challenges per se. And, um, and it creates new questions, I think, of what, how can we work, what we should do, um, and so forth. 
we are coming, we are heading towards um, next year, the 80 years of uh, Bretton Woods Institution. So of course, it's also time for rethinking and, um, and, and, um, and draw and think about the future. Um, and I think there is both a clear need to act on climate change uh, to prevent the worst scenario, but also to resume the reduction in poverty, which is, of course, at the core of the mandate um, of, of this institution. So, um, I mean, just a few words on what is called, I mean, the MDB reform and, and what, are, what are the key questions from a global, I mean, MDB perspective, and then I will focus a bit more on uh, EBRD. But in a way, I think there are three key questions that are put, I mean, that are now raised uh, for MDBs, uh, and in fact, starting with the World Bank, but I think it's a question relevant for all of us. The first one is the role MDB should, should have in tackling uh, global public goods and transboundary challenges and, and climate change is uh, typically the, uh, I mean, one of the, I mean, key strategic public good, but there may be others. And this should be done while maintaining a steady path towards SDG. And we, I mean, we are quite, we are not there yet, clearly, on SDGs. And I think these are two interdependent objectives, environmental sustainable and um, and the healthy world or, or, or in the world without poverty um, is, is very important to achieving lasting prosperity. Second question, which is also, uh, I mean, very closely related to the first one, is what should be the role of MDBs in middle-income countries? Uh, they, you know, they have been progressive, in particular, in particular in the World Bank. Clearly, it's more focused on the uh, poorest countries, but how to address um, middle-income countries to help them with global public goods, but also because you have pools of poverty in middle-income countries. And... Um, and of course, you cannot even support to middle-income countries should not be at the detriment of, of support for poor. I mean, you have a question of allocation of resources, and the resources are not unlimited. <laughs> um, but I think these are two complementary issues, and not there was some game. And uh, the third question, and this is, I mean, the, the one you will talk more with Manfred uh, at the end, is what can we do to, I mean, what can MDBs do to mobilize more private sector? Um, through our full range of activities, but I will I will um, uh, come back uh, to that because I think that there is no one single answer. But I mean, a lot of things we can do in order to facilitate private sector investment and, and contribute to to raise to the challenge. Um, so, and, and I think there is another, um, I mean, the last question maybe on top of these three key questions is, it's not new, but it's still very relevant, is how MDB can work as a system. Uh, because we see, we, each of us have our specific mandate, our history, our geographical scope, and so forth, but we very often cooperate, we address common challenges, and there is a lot of things we can leverage working more together, better together, and, and so forth. So now, that I, I mean, that's, this is for the key question, I think, which are on the core of the discussion on, on the MDP reform and where is EBRD on this, uh, in these different challenges? So first of all, let me have just a sort of very short history of the bank um, because, because of our, I mean, we were the, the most recent 
bank before creation of AIB and, and New Development Bank. So now we are not the youngest one, but we're still quite young because we were created in 91 at the, um, uh, uh, on the fall of the Iron Curtain. And, um, and it was really, I mean, at the, the, the answer, um, Europe and, and broader, I mean, a large, um, large group of shareholders decided to create this bank in order to help the transition of former Soviet Union countries and uh, former communist countries move towards a market economy, democracy and a market economies. And that's why I think because you, we are younger, we were created at a point where some, some of these issues of global public goods and so forth were already on the agenda. We have, for example, embodied in our mandate the question of sustainability, sustainable growth and so forth. And that's why the, the question of energy efficiency, green transition and so forth has been quite earlier on in, um, in uh, the bank agenda. The second feature, which is very specific to the bank, is this very strong focus on the private sector because the purpose of the bank was really to develop private sector in, this, um, in these economies and to catalyze on a private sector to support development. We have I mean, this target of having 75% of our investment in the private sector, which we continue to, um, to stick to. And, um, and really, I mean, our structure is as all, but this is true for all MDBs to use our capital, which is provided by public shareholders to leverage to borrow on the market and, and leverage and, and expand financing. But the specificity is that we focus, I mean, our clients are tilted to um, uh, the private sector. Um, and, and we are mobilizing, and I will come back to that private sector along aside our own investment directly and indirectly. And the last feature, which is very specific to EBRD, is the fact that we are by our geographical scope, historically focused quite on middle-income countries, not so much the poorest countries, but that will change now because of the decision uh, taken in Samarkand, but still the bulk of our countries of operation are um, middle-income countries. And um, uh, what, we, what we've been learning in, in, our, in our, our history is starting from this very specific mandate of getting out of uh, uh, Soviet Union in the post-Soviet uh, environment and so forth, we develop tools and, and priorities and way to, um, to invest and that uh, appear to be very relevant to other places. And that's why the bank geographical scope has progressively expanded to um, Turkey first and then to uh, Mediterranean countries in the context of the Arab Spring. And now the latest move is very recent and is still to be implemented, is to move into sub-Saharan Africa uh, in a I mean, limited number of countries to start with uh, in order to, because, and, and the, I think the shareholders agreed, I mean, and after a lot of work and analysis and so forth, that our specific model and, and would bring something into the, into the region. Maybe one, I mean, the two other specific features, which is, uh, which are, I mean, relevant in terms of when de describing the BRD is, first of all, our model is very much uh, based on having a lot of people on the ground, boots on the ground, as we say. So compared with other MDBs, we have strong teams 
in the country, uh, which is very important for less advanced countries where you have lack administrative capacity and so forth. And um, and the third, um, I mean, another uh, feature is also, and I will come back to that, that we combine financing and policy advice in relation with our, with our priorities. Um, so as I was saying, climate has been since the beginning quite uh, a strong priority for us, and uh, we we have set as a um, I mean, in 2022 we reached two important milestones in that respect. The first one is that we have now all our investment Paris aligned, so we check every project to be sure that it's consistent with uh, reaching the one point. I mean, uh, the objective of the Paris Agreement. And um, and we have uh, now in second year in a row uh, reached 50% of our financing green. So it's a common methodology defined by MDBs, what is green and 50%, we already have 50% of our investment in that, in that area. Um, and, uh, and we managed to do that while on the other hand, making progress on the, our two other horizontal priorities. So we have three, horizontal priority, green, inclusion, including gender and, and digitalization. And so we make progress in parallel on these two um, these three priorities. Um, maybe to, so, so that's where we are. Um, we've been, as I, I explained a bit what we've been evolving, how we've been evolving in terms of geographical scope and the last uh, milestone that represents the expansion in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. There, there have been other evolution in the bank in the way we've been working, um, and in particular on um, how we define, how we assess the added value of our project in relation with the transition mandate. So our mandate, as I was explaining, was transition, but what do, how do you measure transition and how do you assess it? And um, there has been quite a big evolution of this concept of transition, moving from uh, something based on, on three criteria, which was creation, expansion, of, or deepening of market, establishment of strengthening of institution, and um, I mean, the adoption of behavior patterns and skills that have a market perspective. So transition very much focused on market and, and institution behavior um, uh, and uh, deepening of market to a new concept of transition um, defined in 2016 with six transition quality, which enlarge a bit the scope of how we measure the impact of what we are doing. And these three, six transition qualities are competitive, well-governed integration, regional integration, green, inclusive, and resilient. So we look at each and every project and try to measure the impact in relation to these qualities and for us to be able to support a project, it needs to have at least two of these qualities to make to have an impact on the, on two of these qualities, and this is very much this very much drives the selection of project we are financing, but also the policy advice and the policy component of what we are doing in order to help countries or clients moving forward onto these these um, uh, different um, qualities. Um, and, and I think that's something which is um, 
very important, and I will come back to that, on the value added of the, of the activity of an MDB, which is not only about providing money and being a bank, which is providing loan, but also supporting, I mean, encouraging our clients, both in the public and private sector, to transform themselves in order to be more competitive, more resilient, more green. And and, uh, and it's quite, when I when I joined the EBAD, I, I, I knew, of course, the concept and so on, but I was quite impressed about how we can develop that with the private sector. So to, taking a client, a bank or a company in uh, industrial, I mean, a manufacturing company, and still, I mean, bringing them money because they need to do investment, but also convincing them, for example, either to decarbonize or to have a gender uh, pro-gender program in order to bring more women in the, in the workforce or um, uh, developing uh, digitalization new technologies. So this qualitative element is also a very important um, dimension of what we bring both in the public policy agenda and so forth, but also uh, with, um, with uh, private sector. So in a way, when you look at, when I think looking at this short history of EBRD, it shows that, um, first of all, the bank has not remained static. It has remained true to its mandate and, and consistent with its mandate, but also in the permanent evolution and trying to address in a more efficient way and, or, I mean, uh, the, the challenges of, of the time and uh, with, a, I mean, widening its geographical scope, uh, but also, um, but also, I mean, trying to really address the new challenges. In terms of geographical scope, it was quite also interesting to see that EBRD has been called, in the time of the euro area crisis, has been called to help Greece uh, in, with the recapitalization of the banking sector, supporting the, and we've helped them a lot with the green transition, so, and Cyprus. So this was short-term assignment, Cyprus will stop already, Greece will stop in two or three years, in 2025, and so it's short-term, but, you know, being agile and able to step in, help, and then uh, stop. Um, so that's, um, I mean, I think the, a bit in the DNA of the bank, this, this agility, and we try to preserve it despite all the, um, I mean, demand, the, I mean, the requirements uh, which uh, are always increasing in terms of AMHC, CFT, transparency, and all of this. So maybe, I mean, now what's next for us? And I will focus then on, on the conclusion of Samarkand, which was our annual meeting two weeks ago. Important one for two uh, important decisions. I've already spoken about Sub-Saharan Africa, and this was, but it's important to underline that this was the, I mean, a long process in order to um, to get all, all our shareholders on board because of course it's a new, it's not a new continent because we are in the North Africa but it's it's a bit further away from Europe so there were a lot of, of discussion among shareholders about the role of the different MDBs you already have African Development Bank and so forth but I think that at the end of the day we we made we make the point really that with our business model. And this boots on the ground, focus on the private sector, and bring together policy and um, and uh, investment. We would help growing the pipeline of project and and develop uh, opportunities for investment. The second very important decision for us uh, was uh, um, more related was related to directly related to Ukraine. Uh, because Ukraine has been for us the top priority in the since uh, February 2020. 
too, because of the historic, I mean, it's an historic country for the bank. We've been uh, the largest private, the uh, largest institutional investor in the country. And uh, we thought it was very important to continue to support the country in the war situation. So we developed last year a sort of specific business model with um, continuing to invest in a war, but has asking shareholders to provide us with guarantees, risk sharing, in order to we take 50% of the risk on our balance sheet and 50% is supported by grants or guarantees. This worked for 2022, 2023, but um, we think that move, looking forward and thinking about the fact that we don't know how long the war will be, and we know that there will be huge need for reconstruction, we started to reflect about what is the best way to get shareholder support, and we concluded very clearly that the best way in, is capital increase, because it gives it has a higher leverage in terms of uh, money, one dollar or one euro put in the bank would give four, if with capital increase it gives only two with this sharing, and also visibility, predictability, and, and uh, I mean, capacity to scale up in reconstruction. So it's much more efficient for shareholders and it's much more efficient for us and it's better for Ukraine and so it was um, we managed I think to convince our shareholders that this was the best way forward and in Ketamarkand they agreed they acknowledged that and they gave us a mandate to come with a concrete proposal for uh, by the end of the year in order to be able to make a decision so this is we are still have some work ahead of us but there is a clear direction that uh, we are heading towards a capital increase which is uh, very i mean good news for us because it will really help us in in continuing to support ukraine in 2024 with different scenarios of war or um, or work reconstruction the last decision uh, which was taken on samarkand was um, a direct implementation of the CAF report, so the capital adequacy framework, uh, which was command, I mean, uh, asked by the G20, and it was to, to an agreement by our shareholders to withdraw from our article of agreement statutory capital ratio, which was a sort of historical, very basic, not risk uh, sensitive ratio, and it will be at a lower level and the board's policy, so can be changed uh, more easily. So I think this is also, I mean, Preparation for the future will help us and giving more flexibility. So that was a bit, I mean, for us, it's a big roadmap. Uh, we will start investing in Sub-Saharan Africa. Now we need ratification of the article of agreement. It will take a bit of time, but we, we hope to be able to start in 2025. And we hope to have a decision on capital increase by the end of the year. So that will be uh, very important. And all this needs to be done with while keeping this question of climate at the top of what we do, because that will be very, very important in Ukraine and very important in Sub-Saharan Africa. And um, so last, last part of my uh, remarks will focus on, on, on the mobilization and, and um, to, to start, or maybe, we, maybe it's already too long. So, so maybe we, I, we, I stop and I will talk mobilization in the dialogue. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dilbo. Sounds like Samarkand was a very successful um, gathering because obviously it was not just uh, the expansion of Sub-Saharan Africa. We talked about recapitalization for Ukraine um, and, you know, of course, implementation of the CAF. So a, a big agenda ahead. But let, let's move to the private sector mobilization, as we said. And maybe I'll turn to Manfred because, I mean, you were at TBRD for five years, a CFO, 10 years. 
Yeah, of course, I've just said that. But, <laughs> but five years as CFO, right? Ten years. Yeah, as right. CFO, right. So what led you to set up ILX management? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for inviting me to uh, the speaker. And uh, it's nice to do it together with Odile because, yeah, the reason for creating ILX was, uh, came from my experience at the EBRD. It's, uh, it's an unbelievable training ground. Uh, particularly for something like myself, who had made a, a change. I ran capital markets at UBS for more than 10 years, and I felt that it was time for a career switch, and I, I had the opportunity to become CFO to BD. So the two together uh, gave me a very good understanding of what was happening. And uh, I had the uh, the sad privilege of uh, being the CFO to EBRD uh, during the financial crisis. Uh, and then we had the Central European uh, crisis, uh, which people have kind of forgotten about. Uh, we had the Arab Spring, which was a huge challenge for the EBRD, but it needed to have its resources to be able to do it. Uh, the invasion of the Crimea that uh, resulted in the bank having to abandon operations in its biggest country. So all these things, uh, to some extent, landed on your desk and you had to have a view what was the right thing to do. Um, but the bank did very, very well during that period and was able to respond in the way that Odile is talking now. Um, and... Uh, so the when my last two years I was there was when uh, in 2000, well, I did three things. One, we created a, an equity fund for the bank that gave me a bit of an understanding of how uh, the private investors thought about what the bank did. Um, and the SDGs were uh, articulated in 2015, and we had the Paris Accord. And so those are the last two things that happened and, uh, and has transformed everything for everybody, right? the way the EBD does business now, but also for in, in the private sector. Um, and, uh, yeah, what I observed at the time, that was partially from my experience before uh, the EBRD, but also during the time of EBRD and, and returning to the Netherlands, I participated in the, uh, the European Fund for Strategic Investments, the, the Juncker Plan, which was really there to deal with kind of rescuing Europe after the financial crisis. We've all forgotten about these things now, but at the time it was really critical. Uh, and that there was a, a clear market failure, which, which persists today, and that the banking system is unable to support these uh, huge needs for, uh, for investment, uh, broadly speaking, within sustainability, but obviously now more climate-focused. Um, similarly, the, uh, the stock and the bond markets uh, are playing you know, partially a role. People are excluding certain stocks. Uh, people, you know, companies and governments are issuing green bonds, which are all helping, but they're not adding the additional risk capacity that is needed to be able to make the investments. Uh, liquidity is abundant. I mean, the central banks, of course, over the past 10 years, uh, basically printed money. They're now tightening, but, uh, but basically liquidity is not the issue. The issue is risk capacity. And that's why the EBD now is having a capital increase and, uh, and things like that. Uh, so it was clear that there was a, uh, uh, there was a, uh, a market failure that was not being addressed by the capital market on the one hand and not being addressed by the banking system on the other. And we live with that today. So I thought, uh, in coming back to the Netherlands, Netherlands has a very uh, highly concentrated and developed pension system, similar to Scandinavia. Uh, and they had, uh, for uh, you know, reasons that the Netherlands, of course, is very itself very... Uh, um, emotional about sustainability and climate change, uh, being uh, effectively a, a country that's very vulnerable to climate change. And so the pension funds already then, into, when I returned in 2017, uh, had gathered together with uh, the central bank uh, to articulate what they called SDI, Sustainable Development Indicators, to shape the pension fund around sustainability. 
Um, and so a lot of talking uh, and very little doing because it's very hard to do in a financial system that doesn't do. Um, and so, uh, but from my experience at the EBRD, it was clear that this asset class is really an asset class. I mean, Bill, you referred to the fact that you work closely with your sister organizations. But you know, the reality is that is, a that, is a that is very true and that is a very much an untold story about the, uh, the commonality of the multilateral development banks. And so I felt that uh, let's try and see if we can create a fund that brings them together uh, where we will co-finance with all the MDBs uh, on behalf of the Dutch pension funds. And so uh, when I uh, spoke to the German government and the Dutch government and the UK government about the concept, they gave us uh, incubation funding to see if we could unlock it. Uh, the marketplace is a data poor environment. There is no public data on anything that multilateral development banks do. They're very public in their reporting, yeah? uh, but in terms of their financial reporting and their sustainability reporting, it's basically a, a closed shop. And for, for reasons that are obvious, because their stakeholders are mainly uh, their shareholders and the, the, the countries they support, not so much the private sector. You know, they're co-financiers, but not key stakeholders. But see, so we set out to unlock that, and uh, it took us uh, from 2017 up until uh, January last year uh, to get to the point where we had sufficient data. And yeah, all the MDBs helped. We got good syndication data. We got uh, credit data. Uh, we participate in the Impact Harmonized HIPSO. They have a harmonized indicators for private sector operations. Sounds very bureaucratic. But they, they, they literally try and map and, and see if what Adil referred to is they've got a... Uh, uh, a common reporting method for the Paris alignment and climate. Uh, it's, it's a huge asset. Uh, we use it. And so um, we, with all the data, uh, we were able to, uh, to build a case for investment. And then we, we started uh, last year with the, uh, the three large Dutch pension funds. Uh, Dutch pension assets are one and a half trillion alone. Uh, so there's plenty of scope uh, for them to, uh, to increase, their, increase their exposure here. And the uh, you know the main the main value for them is uh, is the clear SDG and climate use of proceeds and reporting. Uh, we're an art we're an SFDR Article Nine fund, not relevant in the UK sadly, but very relevant in the European Union. Um, and uh, of course, it's very strange that you've got the asset class that looks the most obscure. You know, a private credit emerging market is effectively the greenest of green funds. And basically, because that's what the MDBs do. They are the best impact investors in the world. Um, and so we, uh, we've started and uh, we now manage over one billion for them. Uh, we're a specialized firm. So we're, we're not seeing this as part of our uh, portfolio of asset management products. This is the only thing we do. Because with the, we think that this is an asset class that has got huge potential to grow, uh, but it, it's a very different skill to trading bonds or trading equities or uh, running it as a bank portfolio. This is a, a skill where your alignment of interest needs to be very close with the MDBs. So you know, the way we run our business is virtually lockstep with the MDBs. We don't need a, a senior position to the MDBs, so we match their maturities. And similar to the pension funds, you know, those are long liability asset owners. Uh, the MDBs are effectively long liability asset owners. And so it's a perfect marriage to bring them together. You know, the, this, the banking system is a short liability, long asset. Well, look what happened in California. It all went a bit fair shift. And in Zurich, by the way. So this long, long liability, long asset model to scale that up is, I think, the big challenge that the MDBs have. But I think it's, 
I think we're at the beginning of something very significant there. Um, so that's, um, you know, and I think what has really been proven over the past, we've now been operational for just over nine months. Uh, we have co-financed with uh, the uh, EBRD, IFC, African Development Bank, Asian Development Bank, Latin, uh, the Inter-American Development Bank, FMO. Uh, very modestly, but we were the largest B lender to the, to the EBRD last year, so larger than all the banks. Still very small, but it just shows you how broken the system is in terms of the commercial banks participating. Um, so in terms of the discussion, I think, on the market creation side, there is still a lot more to do in terms of the, uh, the, the, the immense data gap that exists. I mean, you cannot have a, a scaled-up asset class of trillions uh, where there's a data-poor environment. That's not the way finance works. Uh, so uh, finding data transparency, harmonized reporting, uh, common practices among the MDBs is, is a super is a real priority. But G20 is, is focused on it. And I think I think everybody's on the way in wavelength. Uh, there's now there's a credit database called Gems. There's now been a survey to unlock it. So we're all we're all moving in the same direction. But climate change is not something we can you know sort of look as a long term horizon. It, these things need to happen now if we want to achieve it. Um, there are some uh, issues that also need to address regarding uh, climate transition. You know, there's a big debate in terms of, of course, financial systems are getting uh, very conservative on financing energy transition and the issue about you know, the, the, the fossil fuel issue. Well, of course, you know, the energy transition in countries like Indonesia, South Africa, Bangladesh, Vietnam are not going to happen without fossil fuel. So this is a big debate. How do we help them? If we, if we block that door, there is no finance. I mean, to my point, there is no other finance than MDB finance in this country. So if the, if the international community does not enable the transition in these countries, of course, we're, we're kidding ourselves. So this is a big debate about, about energy transition and who finances it. Particularly in Europe and in the UK, you know, it's a bit of a no, it's no goes out in the area, but of course, in the emerging markets. That's why you see a lot of opposition from emerging markets in, 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 in the, the, all the climate accords, where they say, well, we can agree to everything, but you've got to help us. The question is, how do you do it? It's not going to come from the commercial banks and not from the stock market. Um, I think I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stop there. There's a, a lot of interesting questions to come, right? so I look forward to the... Yeah, let's get to the questions. Then, thanks for explaining what Alex um, management does. I mean, I'm sure there'll be plenty of questions on the on the energy transition. But I leave that for uh, for the audience. Uh, I I just wanted to try and unpack a little bit more this private sector mobilization. I mean, if I understand correctly, ILX strategy is in many ways dependent on a shift in the MDB model from one of operate hold to one of operate and, and distribute, but there are many obstacles there. Um, and so I'd be interested to understand better what the obstacles are, and if that is the right model, how do we get there? Yeah. Don't know who was maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe, um, first of all, I think that today in the green transition, the limiting factor is not necessarily finance. It's not because if, even if we had trillions available today, in, which, in what project investing them, this is a challenge. And I think so, and I don't mean, I, I think that we see an acceleration and we see more need for financing and so forth. So at some point, finance will become a limiting factor. But today, for example, in, in the countries in which we, want, we work, finding projects for the, I mean, green project is not so easy because 
you need to convince the authorities that this, this is the right way to go, that this is in their interest, you have a lot of vested interest, you have a lot... So there is a huge work which is um, needed in order to, dev to convince, I mean, and, and to, to facilitate to develop investment opportunities in emerging markets. And um, uh, because, you know, you can do uh, small project, but at scale. So, and, and this is a lot of policy work, of economic work, in order to show that it's in the interest of the country, that they have, uh, I mean, for the long-term competitiveness, it will be better. That, um, I mean, now that the cost of renewable has decreased very substantially, the case is much easier. So that's why we see an acceleration and 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 the trend is, is really picking up. But up to now, and you need to have, for example, the right regulatory framework, legislative framework in order for renewable investment to be uh, uh, able to, to, to develop and so forth. So this is a huge part of the of the work that um, that is needed. And it's very often it's done by NDB. I consider this is core of our responsibility to really develop this environmental and this strategic approach that will, I mean, in partnership with the government and with our clients to create investment opportunities that will facilitate green transition. And then when we come to the, I, the, I agree that there is, we will need a shift to, to more uh, originate and, and, um, and uh, distribute or share because our, I mean, the, one of the limitations is the fact that our business model is to get some revenues based on our lending activity. So we, we do not, normally we don't have capital increase. We are set up in a way to be able to be sustainable. And, and the, the EBRD did not get for years capital increase because we generated revenues that were put in, I mean, in reserve and allowed us to grow our portfolio. Um, and, and for that, you need to have margins and to generate revenue. So the, the, if you, to be able to do the work of preparing the project and so forth, you need to have the capacity to do that. And, and so I think that the, we need to have a balance in the um, portfolio we, we sell, we share and so forth and, and, um, and what we keep on our balance sheet. As I, I mean, I think that as the needs and the, the investment opportunities we grow, I don't think that will be a major obstacle because then we can prepare a lot of projects, we can keep a small share, and 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 but but we are we are still in the in the phasing up model to um, in order to um, to find more more investment opportunities and 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 exploring also always to um, to share to, to bring a different sort of private investor. For example, we've been developing quite a lot the uh, unfunded risk participation, which is not with pension fund but with the insurers, where they take part of the risk that we um, we take on our balance sheet. So they, they we share with them. Not if they do not provide financing, so it's not finance, not funded, but they cover part of the risk of our portfolio, project by project, and this is also growing. So this is, I mean, we look at all avenues, and originate and and share will be, I think, something that we grow. It's also a way to bring investors, not necessarily, for example, at the construction phase of infrastructure and so forth, but you you can sell or sell the, the, the loan or get some refinancing when the project is more secure, the risk is lower because the construction has been done, it's up and running, and then this is something we've also explored, we've been exploring on some areas.
what's your view on this matter? Well, yeah, no, I, uh, I think the main, the main thing is uh, the scale that is required. And if you look at what the, uh, the MDBs are now doing in private sector finance globally on an annual basis, it's far too low. Uh, I mean, it's, they're different numbers, but it's something between 30 and 50 billion a year globally across all the institutions. I mean, it's a, it's a fraction of what private finance is in other places or what the EIB does in Europe. So that scaling up is really, really urgent. Uh, and that will require, on the one hand, capital, but on the other hand, also a business model uh, that um, enables institutions like ourselves to also scale up. Uh, the, this year, uh, we will invest 500 million. It's our first year. Uh, the years after could be up to 1 billion a year, which will make us very large in that market, but still very small. Uh, uh, and so facilitating that growth of co-investment is something that I think is, uh, has really transformed over the past 12 months, but there is a lot more a lot more to go. And the other point, I, I think I want to make it perhaps in, the, in, in relate to this question, and it's quite technical, but uh, Odile has been, uh, been chair of the Paris Club, she fully is the role of international financial institutions as lenders, which is a, a privileged status, uh, because under treaty, uh, the, you know, the IMF and the World Bank, EBRD, and the other multilateral companies have got a unique status in these countries, and that allows them to do so well, that allows them to be such a efficient uh, institution with local presence, etc. Uh, and that is something that can be shared and is shared uh, with the private sector like ourselves. And that's something that has a lot more potential to, to also increase. I think that will facilitate that distribution of, of not only, you know, of basically will facilitate the distribution of those assets, which will provide both risk capital and liquidity. Let's talk about the, the potential for private sector investors to co-invest with MDBs, you know, the, the mobilization of the private sector in, in a stricter sense. Uh, I mean, there's been so much hype about the billions to trillions. And when we look at the figures, that hype has really been, you know, in a way, demystified. I mean, the OECD uh, overall, you know, figures for all the amount mobilized by MDBs and DFIs in 2020, the overall was 51.3 billion. And in, at ODI in 2019, we actually did a study with a number of uh, DFIs and uh, MDBs, which calculated that for each dollar of MDB or DFI capital, the private sector capital was 0.75. And actually, in low-income countries, it was 0.37. So not much of billion to trillions there. Uh, why is it so difficult to achieve you know, this... Uh, <laughs> Is lifting, is leveraging. I mean, is is there something that is not happening, or is private sector, you know, direct private sector mobilization, inherently uh, too challenging to achieve? Well, I think there are two forms of mobilization. One, which I think a lot more can be done, but the MDBs really play a very big role in, is that is helping the private sector invest in these countries as a as a developer, as an operator, as a real long term investor. Uh, so you've got, uh, particularly in, in things like the renewable energy sector. Uh, the MDBs are, are being very efficient at helping private sector companies develop this. But that's more the classic way of supporting the private sector make an investment in these countries. I think what you're referring to is why don't more institutions like banks uh, asset management? And there we have a, a real a dilemma where um, these institutions are looking for uh, liquidity in their investments. They're looking for investment grade ratings in their investments. Uh, and they're very vocal. Uh, the biggest financial investors in the world are the big banks, 
JP Morgan's, the big asset managers, the Black Rocks, they're very vocal. They're saying, we'll do more, but you have to de-risk me. Mm -hmm. Like, hold on, that's like a free lunch. I'm speaking very openly here. Yeah? Uh, and so we have to move away from engaging with the people who want a free lunch because subsidies are something that will not be tolerated by the shareholders of these institutions or by donors. It needs to really be catalytic capital uh, and not subsidy. And, uh, and for that, there are uh, instruments that can be used. But So this applies to the banking system. The banking regulators, of course, are making it virtually impossible to invest in emerging markets. So none of the European banks or American banks or British banks are active in emerging markets anymore. Asset managers need liquidity. Uh, so for them, green bonds will work, but not long-term, illiquid, project-based investments. So you're really looking at the pension industry and the sovereign wealth industry, which is not to be poo-pooed, because in aggregate, the, 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 the developed pension systems and the developed, or in the larger, uh, call it, uh, sovereign wealth systems, you know, you're talking in excess of 10 trillion. So that's a vast amount of capital. Uh, so it's learning to work with them and, uh, and coming up with modalities that, uh, that suit them. Do you think that is a positive? I mean, I've heard a lot about the challenge, be the balance between de risking and the subsidy, and that's where it seems to I get don't stuck. Agree with what said, because very often, you know, these trillions announced by, by yeah. uh, some international bank saying, just guarantee me and I, and I can come. And so this is clearly not the solution because even, I mean, the, the need to, guarantee, to provide guarantees and that subsidies, you need to have soft money and, and, and it's very extremely costly. So, so that's, uh, um, but maybe, I mean, a few additional obstacles. One obstacle is uh, because, for example, we work in some small countries. So it's easy to, for, to do some, to, to attract private investors and do some co-financing. And when you have 100, a project of 100 million, 200 million, 300 million, but we do a lot of projects, which is 20 million, 30 million, when you work in Western Balkans, in Albania, in very small project because it's it's not all I mean, gigawatt but it can be 100 megawatt and it's still relevant but it's and and this is the cost to bring private investors of you know the due diligence and so forth it's, it's not worth it so that's that's an issue an obstacle i think that we we need to address i don't know packaging and uh, project bringing the bulk of project together and so forth so that, that's a limitation the second um, limitation beyond the issue of the pipeline of project uh, and, and to have, which is in my view is currently, I think, very, I mean, a key priority. And to do that, we need, you know, some capacity to do policy work and, and the grant financing and so forth, you know, to be able to convince countries, clients that this is a way to go quickly and so forth. But another, um, another limitation because you have not so many funds like uh, ILX. Huh? It's really, you are a big front runner, I mean, front runner, your unique profile, private sector, you're in the EBRD and so forth. So you've, I mean, not so many people understand really and are committed to invest into that. And I think there is one issue, which is you see now more and more savers. I mean, people, I mean, who are interested in investing in the green, at least in Europe, people are interested in putting their saving in, in projects that will have a positive effect on, on climate. I'm not sure that it's such a key driver and understanding that in climate investment in emerging countries is something which is good for the planet and, and a sort of investment thesis that where you can, you know, bring support from your clients, your ultimate clients and so forth. And that's something maybe we need to better 
reflect and because it's not the same to invest in green uh, investment in developed countries and in developing countries where the risk is, is a bit higher and, and so i think that's one element which is a uh, element that data and transparency on data and, and more being able to communicate better on what is the risk related to project financed by mdbs because in a way Emerging countries are seen as a, I mean, risky exchange rate and, and, and project financing is risky per se. But we, when you have an MDB, with because of the preferred creditor status, but also because of our deep involvement in the country, and whenever you know there is an issue, we are able, even on a private sector project, to talk to the authorities to find a solution to uh, to ensure that finally, I mean, there is a way out. This really reduces the, the degree of, of, of risk, but this is not well taken into account. It's not understood by the regulator. It's not taken into account by the regulation, um, and, and so forth. So this is something I think we need also to make progress on. The other thing that I always hear about when talking about private sector mobilization is the more use of blended capital in this. So basically, using um, concessional financing, usually donor raised, blended with MDB's own capital. Do you have successful examples of you know, the uses of blended capital that we can learn from? We have a, a project, our MOU with EFSD+, which is a form of blended capital in order, and I think the idea is really to, because we already have this project without blended capital, but to go a bit more on projects which are more risky that ILX could not take without guarantee. And we have done some projects, for example, with um, refinancing of renewable uh, in Egypt, which is uh, not the best uh, rated countries. And and, uh, and with, we mixed a MIGA guarantee, so political risk insurance, plus we provided um, liquidity guarantees that the, the investor will be will not wait three or four years for MIGA to decide to pay because uh, uh, of the processes related to MIGA, but we will provide liquidity immediately. But so we, we, we did this project together with MIGA. We improved the rating by six notch. So we brought in, the, but this is extremely costly. The amount of guarantee put by MIGA plus our financing, you can do that for 300 million, but you cannot do that for trillions. Huh? So. It's a good example. It shows that this, but I'm not sure the scalability is limited, I think. Yeah, I was going to ask about the pros and cons, you know, what are the advantages? Yeah, what I are mean, the... um, uh, I've been uh, from the beginning quite outspoken that what we need to create is a, uh, a transparent uh, marketplace that is not influenced by subsidy. Uh, and this, I'm an economist trained at LSE, or where other, which you know well. Yeah, subsidies are the killer of, of an efficient market. Uh, and so I think development finance as an asset class has absolutely a critical role to play in our society over the coming two decades. And for that, we need to create a marketplace for it and not disturb it too much with subsidy. So that was my inherent firm belief in it. Um, but obviously, you know, I think the, the, a lot of the shareholders want the MDBs to go to higher risk uh, sectors higher risk countries, low income countries, uh, post-war environments such as Ukraine. Um, and the question of middle income is still very prevalent because uh, the MDBs still play a huge role in countries like Turkey and in, in Central Europe, uh, in Poland. I mean, so uh, the role is not just in the, in the vulnerable countries or in the poor countries. 
Uh, and so where I think there is a role for uh, donors and governments to uh, facilitate investment is in to enable also the sharing of risks in, in those particular areas, such as low-income countries, to, to give the, you know, the MDBs more breathing space, more capacity cap to, to make investments there. Um, so that's, but that's purely to mitigate certain country risk uh, in, in, in effectively you know, triple C rated countries. It's to uh, take away some technology risk. Of course, there's a lot of potential in hydrogen, but you know, there's like you know, a big investment needed with a big risk. Well, that's dangerous stuff. So that's where I think blending can really help at the project level. Also make it affordable. I mean, a lot of the, 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 the green technology that is available to you know European countries, of course, is quite unaffordable in many other countries. And of course, donors play a big role, call it blending, to enable the affordability of technology. You know, if we're basically going to make technology unaffordable in the emerging markets, well, good luck in their energy transition. It's my earlier point. So I think this project level blending, call it financial blending, which we're, we're now looking at with the EBRD and the European Union, or call it project-level blending in terms of grant and making making investments affordable. Yeah, I think is the MDBs and the donors are going to play an enormous role in that. I think where the where donors have learned their lesson now, what we cannot do, we cannot make the whole emerging market suddenly investment grade so everybody can invest. That doesn't work. So the, at the core, I think mobilization needs to look at which investors really believe in development finance and are willing to take that sub-investment grade risk, but perhaps perceived risk of being too high, but working with the MDBs, and this is what I've phrased it as, I call it the big blend. The MDBs, they have been created, uh, they are, they have uh, you know, uh, privileges, uh, whether or not it's taxation, whether or not it's preferred credit status, or whether or not it's uh, the fact that their, their shareholders don't get dividends, it allows their efficiency. Uh, and I call it the big blend, because that's been paid for by all the shareholders. Uh, it doesn't it's not capitalized, but it's it's a status that is incredibly valuable, and so that's what I see as a as a far more efficient way of blending than looking at uh, yeah at technologies that I saw in the run up to the financial crisis where there was a lot of structured credit, and I would hate to see uh, some of the, the 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 instruments that helped the financial crisis sort of enter the the phase of development finance. I think there's no place for that. Indirect mobilization. We have to, because when we talk about mobilization, there are some very narrow definition where we we talk about one billion, two billion. But then when you look at indirect mobilization, which is a project in which we invest, but which because we have been there allows others to come and and so forth, then it's ten times bigger. So that probably the concept which is more relevant, more difficult to define, but more relevant in a way. I'm just. Know, thinking about our development finance team and sort of setting the exam question of the development finance as an asset class. I'll be discussing that with the team. Um, it, it, I want to open to the audience, but really in one minute each, I cannot, you know, sort of um, close the discussion without sort of touching on the reform of the MDB's agenda that you know, has been discussed at the G20. Where do you think it's going to lead us? What, what kind of changes will it bring for BRD, but also in particular for the role of the private sector? No, I think there has been quite a useful focus and, and um, I mean, vivid discussion. And um, it's, um, it's good to have this kind of discussion about uh, the efficiency of the capital used and so forth. I think EBRD, we were already, I mean, in the context of the financial crisis, already optimized quite a lot our capital uh, utilization. Um, so I think that there are some recommendations we've 
uh, were already in place in EDRD since a few years. For other MDBs, this has unlocked some capacity, some additional capacities, a bit in the World Bank. I think the Asian Development Bank, they have if implementing the, the um, um, report, they will they, this have additional capacity they did not um, use before. So I think this is a some, and there are some discussion on, I mean, issues we will continue to discuss, uh, possibility to have hybrid capital, and so forth that we remain uh, very relevant. Uh, it, for us, it's not a magic bullet where we suddenly we can double our investment without, uh, without capital. So there is some incremental progress and some, there is something which I think we, we need to make further progress and uh, which is, um, and now it's uh, the objective of the G20 new expert group, uh, which is MDB as a system, cooperation among MDBs and so forth. Because when we work together, we can deliver quite a lot. There is one excellent example, which is the way MDBs have cooperated on solar panel. You know that there have been a lot of, I mean, shareholders, key shareholders asking for, to have, I mean, to be very selective in supply chain, much more forceful in supply chain discussion on solar panel because of forced labor in Xinjiang and so forth. MDBs have worked really as a team. And, and at the end of the day, we really managed to push and to, to change the practice of the clients, of the, of the suppliers, because they were, I mean, they realized at some point that uh, non-MDB will finance them. They could not have any project and so forth. So this shows that, when being very well aligned and, and, and um, working closely together, we can be quite effective. Absolutely. And there's a lot more on, you know, sort of on, on risk standards, on, you know, sort of bringing together a lot of other elements and criteria that are really important. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, that, it's a tangential is, is my earlier point about this lender of record status of the MDBs as international financial institutions. I see that as a, uh, a significant opportunity for the MDBs in scaling up with the private sector over the coming decade. Um, of course, underneath it is what Odil refers to this, uh, call it the systemic harmonization, that, that the, the way they are taking decisions on the energy transition, that you know, the, 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 the board discussions kind of end up in the same place, whether or not you're the EBRD or the African Development Bank. It's a challenge, but I think it will make a life a lot easier if the way uh, the boards look at these at these critical issues is uh, is consistent across the MDBs, because we, you know, we struggle with it, because you get different answers in different places, and it makes it a bit complex. But issues around yeah, just the, the way be, you know, we already now we see huge advantage. We did a very large uh, Uzbek solar project where um, the EBRD was involved, the Asian Development Bank, the European Investment Bank, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, and they're all following uh, the same. Uh, supply chain issues in relation to the so so there was a really classic example of uh, of how it can work and we, we were the only private sector participant in that entire in that entire financing um, so I think the, the the issues about the financial recommendations I think kind in my being CFO you know being on both sides of me they're like motherhood and apple pie yeah of course you know the the statutory change at the EBRD is like could have done it 10 years ago but these things are logical some need a capital increase, efficient use of SDRs. I mean, there's there's obvious things that can be done, but the main thing is the philosophy of how do we scale up together. I think that's uh, that's I think that message is what G20 is asking for. Excellent. Let me open to the audience. Um, first of all, the open the audience here in London. Uh, please raise your hand and uh, say who you are if you are associated with uh, any organization. There is a roving mic somewhere. And for those online, do submit your question in the chat boxes. 
under the live stream and the team will put the questions to me. Gentlemen, here the phone. I'll take Thank your four together and hopefully uh, a couple of rounds. Please. Thank you. I'm Lee Bailey from the Natural Resource Governance Institute. Um, the news about the EBRD's potential entry into sub-Saharan African countries is really interesting. Um, I read that a couple of the potential, uh, I know, and I don't want to press you on it because I know it's all very early days, but I read that Ghana, Senegal, Nigeria are among some of the countries that um, you may look at uh, working in. Um, these countries, I mean, you look at Nigeria, so highly dependent on oil, it's becoming a huge problem um, there. Uh, Ghana, not dependent on oil, but very, uh, you know, has a significant oil industry. Senegal looking to enter the natural gas sector. Um, my question is, when you enter uh, countries like that, what is the potential for the EBRD and, and the private sector in conjunction to help with economic diversification? That's an incredibly important issue in a place like Nigeria. Um, and I wondered if in the bank's history or experience in other um, you know, quote unquote, frontier countries in which it's entered in, in recent years, there are examples that can show the way for um, investments on the financing side, but also on the policy advisory side there and, and how you can use these modalities to, to diversify economies in places like that. I said that the energy transition will be picked up by the audience. <laughs> Thanks. Um, lady over there. Yes, hi. Good evening, everyone. My name is Claudia Keller. I work for the German government, long time on climate finance, and I have uh, two questions to Manfred. Um, so we talked a lot about risk sharing between private sector and the MDBs, um, but my direct question, of course, is uh, why are there not more funds like the ones that you did set up? And uh, especially looking at the peers that you have maybe within Europe, I think Sweden has and a like system with the same size of, of, of pensions being managed. Um, so first question in a sense, why is there not more than, than you? And then second one, which I found particularly interesting in dealing with private finance in the past years is looking at financial regulation within the EU and looking at the green financial regulation, but also the supervision that is very different of pension funds on European and national level. Is it already designed in a way that would at least not be harming you to invest in emerging markets? Or is there something that could be done on that part so that we do not have unintended consequences when it comes to the mandate that we want to have, and that is investing in the sustainability of the global south? Thank you very much. Gosh, loads of hands. Um, Vince here at the front, and then I'll come to you. Be quick, please. The mic is there. Um, climate projects uh, are sort of economically different from others because of the extreme long-term irreversible nature. And your former chief economist, uh, Nick Stern, amongst others, has argued that you should be applying zero discount rate. Not a free lunch, but, but not discounting future benefits. Do you, do you adapt your project criteria to reflect the special nature of climate? Thanks, Vince. Can you introduce yourself for the online audience, please? At the back. Behind you. Hi, uh, I'm Bianca Gutzel. I'm a researcher here at ODI, and I work very closely on, on the private capital mobilization point. And I have a question on, on both sides uh, of, of the development finance system. 
One, the, the natural question to me with EBRD expanding to Sub-Saharan Africa is how do you or what are the challenges to mobilizing institutional investors in those countries? Because uh, a fund like ILX works really well in, in mobilizing mostly uh, assets in the Netherlands, but there's over 350 billion held in Africa. They don't deal with local currency risk. Maybe they're more well suited. What are the challenges and how can we leverage them? And then the, the second question, if I can, uh, is picking up on, on something you mentioned about investing in green, but then pushing that to emerging markets. And, and in our research, that's been a key point. Here in the UK, fiduciary duties, those few pension funds that get sustainability, look at it locally. They don't look at it globally. And I think Netherlands is, is a special case. So how can we learn from maybe what the Dutch pension funds have already figured out and be able to make that investment case, that sales pitch to EMDs for EMD SDG investment. Thank you. And this was the gentleman next to you, and then I'll finish with the lady there. And I was loads online, so I'll come back to uh, Manfred and Odile and then try and get to the online ones. Hi, my name is Mark Boland. I work for Red Intelligence here in London, mostly focusing on Africa sovereign risks. So my question, yeah, I'm also interested in this of how to select these countries and also now you're going in when a lot of these countries mentioned while well, Ghana's you know halfway through a debt restructuring Senegal their debt to GDP is up at 70 percent and how how do you manage those risks and especially if you want to crowd in private investment I mean as you know the multilaterals are excluded from a debt restructuring sort of more multilateral finance of course that bears a risk if there is a debt restructuring in the in the coming years for the uh, for the private sector so thank you thank you uh, hi this is ishita and i'm currently studying uh, public policy at london school of economics so you mentioned in the very start that uh, you are looking at policy-based loans and policy conditionality. So I was curious, like, how has been the response around putting in conditionality, especially around sector reforms to make it uh, further private sector attractive? So, and how are you able to sustain it? Uh, if you could give some examples. And the second question is somewhat related to what my professor just mentioned. Uh, how do you de-risk projects specifically in climate adaptation where the risk, especially in vulnerable 20 countries, where the risk is super high, there are hardly any uh, returns or revenue streams, especially in uh, coastal projects? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Did you want to start? Take uh, what okay. you like. Manfred, deal with the rest. Um, so on this essay, uh, on um, so first of all, we don't. I will take the question maybe not in the, in the order. So we don't do policy-based loans. So we don't do budget policy-based loans. So we do, but we indeed do some. Um, uh, we do some policy which are not related to financing sometimes when we think, for example, to take an example, on, we do a lot of policy work on uh, supporting countries to develop an option framework for uh, renewable because uh, and, and this is and then they, then later on we may have project because uh, they will do auction and there will be some developers in renewable. But so the first part is, is, is really policy just. I mean, advice in a way, and um, and some when it's related to a loan conditionality, as you mentioned, 
Um, I mean, we try to convince the clients that it's in their, their interest, um, and and um, and very often, I mean, it's, it's okay. Sometimes it's, I mean, it's always a discussion. Sometimes they, they consider, well, it's not interested for us. So, but it's um, often we manage to, to bring them so that it, it would improve their own management, uh, their, their, their their competitiveness, and and so forth. Adaptation, we do very little. For us, it's a big challenge. Financing of adaptation, and that's something be, because we were I mean, not in the in Sub-Saharan Africa yet. So this is an area where probably we do more adaptation. We do a bit, but because we have this strong private sector focus, it's very difficult to have. I mean, economic model for adaptation financing in the private sector. So this is something we want to scale up, and we are working with others in order to to learn how to, what. I mean, um, how we can um, enhance our fin financing there, but it's, it's a bit of a challenge. On um, on SSC, so we will not on SSC in, in all countries and, and so forth. We we do not finance um, oil uh, and fossil fuel upstream and so forth. And in terms of diversification, we will. Um, I mean, one of our big priority in all countries is to, for, for example, support SMEs. And so develop in, I mean, through advisory activity, even not financing, but really helping them to formalize and, and so forth. So it's sort of, it's not to, but step by step, you know, develop SMEs and financing through the financial institution, um, support FDI coming in the country. Uh, so all this kind of, of um, uh, activity is for us a way to, to diversify. So, um, and, um, and in terms of example, I mean, that's what we, for example, Western Balkans, we've been doing a lot of that in, in Serbia, for example, to develop, uh, to attract uh, foreign investors and so forth. But it's, um, I mean, and sometimes it, it, it's, it's a challenge and to diversify. We, we've been working in Kazakhstan for years, so it's, they are still very dependent because often it's such attractive, I mean, it's provides so much resources that it's difficult. But, but, but this is something we really, I mean, working through the SMEs and FDI is, is um, um, on the question of interest rate, we, we still, I mean, in, in order to, um, to measure the benefit of a project, we still look at the return because of the project, I mean, uh, we need to be paid back. So we look at the return of investment and the capacity to pay us back. But um, but of course, we have such a strong priority on, um, on uh, green financing that, um, I mean, and, and the, the, the way we measure the impact of this project is, I mean, as soon as the project is green, it's has a huge boost in our own um, own way to measure the, the impact. So the way this is, I think, the way we, we address your your question. Um, on um, challenge, on SSA mobilization, I mean, private sector mobilization, it will be, I think it, it will be a challenge. I was talking about smaller countries. It's quite interesting to see with the first project we have had with ILX is related to the largest countries we have, Uzbekistan, Turkey, that's where you have big projects. And uh, in, as I was saying, for example, I mean, early advanced transition countries, so countries which are less advanced, it's more difficult, smaller projects, and as I say, it will be, and that will be a challenge, I think, because the small countries, smaller projects, uh, that's, uh, that's where we will have to be innovative, I think, in terms of putting projects together. And, um, and um, the question of debt restructuring, we work mainly with the private sector. So 
it's not, I mean, you were talking about that sustainable government, that sustainability, which, which um, so we work mainly with the private sector and sub-sovereign municipality, which are not, I mean, uh, should be without uh, sovereign guarantees. So we will look at, I mean, uh, the solvency of our clients and, and uh, um, this will limit our capacity. We still do a bit of sovereign and this will limit our capacity to do sovereign uh, financing if, if the country is really on the verge of uh, I mean, debt sustainability, a uh, major, major concern. But um, um, otherwise, I mean, we, we believe financial institution, private, direct private clients and so forth will be our key target. Thank you. Straight yep. for you, like, why aren't more funds like ILX? So yeah, a, a couple of points that are related to some of the questions. The first on, uh, on your issue of, of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the carbon-intensive countries and investment there. Um, I think the, the interesting thing in working from outside with the, the Dutch pension funds, but I think um, it's going to be very similar uh, in Scandinavia and, and to some extent uh, other developed countries um, where they have from a, the same policies very simple because of course they tend to be very close to their governments and their governments are very important shareholders of the MDB so guess what <laughs> the policies are very similar yeah? uh, so we can't do upstream oil and gas either uh, there is the question about how do you deal with companies particularly in emerging markets that are my, that we have a, a, a solar project with or a wind project but the sponsor is of course also running the the, the, the fossil the fossil fuel plant and that's a discussion that even in the MDBs is still taking place how do we deal with these kind of sponsors um, you know they, in, in most of our operation uh, the biggest developers of renewable energy are funded entirely out of effect or at the shareholder level by very large oil producing countries in the, the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, etc. So we have this dilemma everywhere. Um, from a project standpoint, uh, the first project we did as ILEX last summer uh, was with a very good bank in Nigeria that of course has lots of business in the oil industry, but we did a, a woman in business loan for them. So the use of proceeds only went to female entrepreneurs in Nigeria. Yeah? So, and our investor accepted that. They said, okay, we know the bank, of course, is active in the oil industry. How can you not be in Nigeria? But the, but the use of proceeds uh, went directly there. Um, and the questions on, on why are there aren't other investors uh, uh, doing this? I think partially it is a, a bit of a system change in that uh, the asset management industry, the private credit industry, the private equity industry uh, yeah, has a very high rent as an intermediary, uh, has a very high cost basis intermediary. And of course, we're dealing here with pension funds that are very long liability, long asset. They just want to have a sustainable return. It's different to the sustainable return of the EBRI, but not so different. The conditionality right investment is very similar. You know, they have to meet pension solvency, which is a different calculation than the return on capital of the EBD, but not so dissimilar. So it's finding a like-minded uh, intermediary who can work with those type of things. That, that hasn't really happened until now because uh, yeah, the asset management industry is looking for, for different models, uh, part of a portfolio of different, different instruments. So I think the, the specialization will come and yeah, we would welcome other people doing it. But it's, it's just not the same as doing a classic uh, asset management business in London. It doesn't, you know, we're, that's why we're in, we're in Amsterdam. Uh, most of the employees used to work at the EBRD, uh, the FMO, et cetera. You know, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, I'm not going to go into the details, but 
you're not going to find a lot of similarity between the London financial system and ILX. You'll find a lot more similarity between the EBD and ILX. <laughs> and that's part of being in the business. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's part of a new way of, of doing finance without the cost of the intermediation. Uh, the other part is we're, we're relying entirely on the documentation of the MDBs. So, you know, we're, we are, we're doing the whole of ILX now with 20 people. Uh, we're going to be fully invested this year. We're launching the second fund, which will be, I don't know, yeah, two to three billion, because that's where we see the pipeline. We're not going to do it with more people. We'll do it with 20 people. So it's creating an efficient model uh, that allows, you know, a, a form of intermediation to be done that's different from what the past is. Um, so what, what kind of lessons we learned to your question, why don't UK investors do this? I mean, yeah, a lot of them are kind of stuck in the old model uh, where, and the advisors are as well. The, the, the pension advisors are stuck with the old model of advising people to invest in conventional assets. Um, but it's beginning to, it's beginning to, to, to change. Um, and we'll see it with, uh, with our successor fund. Um, and conversations like this, I mean, it does wake people up. Uh, the, the point on, 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 on local assets, I think, is a really important one. Uh, where, and, and uh, I think Odile didn't touch on either, but it's, there is, of course, an elephant in the room, is that a lot of the finance that the MDBs uh, have provided over the past 50 years, you know, we've been selling hard currency liabilities, which is not necessarily the right thing for these countries. But the problem is that there aren't local financial systems that enable the MDBs to efficiently be the provider of long-term local currency risk or local currency financing. So this is a huge strategic objective uh, for the MDBs to increase their ability to uh, lend in local currency in these countries because this, you know, we, 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 you, know, you can't dollarize the whole of Africa and Euroize the whole of uh, whatever Central Asia. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, but this, this is a, that's, a, that's, that's an intergenerational type, type work. Uh, so for the moment, hard currency play a big role also for us because our investors, they understand dollars and euros, you go local currency. They, they like it and they do it already, but doing it via this type of instrument will take a bit of education and time. Uh, but it's, it's, I think, uh, really important. And of course, once that begins, you can begin to unlock local savings because you do have countries in the emerging markets with big pension savings, Kenya, South Africa, Brazil, Mexico, so, you know, in Asia in particular. Uh, and that's something where I think the MDBs have a lot of uh, a lot of learning to do themselves. I think for for the EBRD going into sub-Saharan Africa will be a big learning exercise in terms of how do you how do you operate truly local rather than just you know importing uh, or exporting hard currency loans, which is a bit of a bit of an easy thing to do. Um, and the last point on 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 adaptation, uh, yeah, to, to reiterate what Odile said, that obviously the biggest challenge in climate adaptation is at the the government level. I'm, I'm a board member of, of a Dutch bank that supports the water infrastructure in the Netherlands. Yeah, that's all. You know, building dikes and dams in the Netherlands is, is that's not a private sector operation. That's uh, <laughs> that's public finance. Yeah? Um, but you know, we, but nevertheless, we we did uh, finance a uh, a fish farm in Turkey that uh, most of the sea bass you eat in Amsterdam comes from there, um, which we can say is good or bad. But anyway. People eat sea bass, uh, and a lot of it comes to Turkey. And then it was for an investment to because they need to move from the, I don't know, but they need to go to the Black Sea because of for climate reasons. So there was a climate adaptation to the private sector. So there are that you can sometimes find them, but they're not very easy to find. Most of it's in the public sector. Thanks, Amber. We got four minutes left. I just want to pick two questions from. Uh, 
um, the online audience. There were plenty more, but let me just do um, one each. I'll start with you, Manfred. There is one that is direct um, to you. Um, it's Chris, no affiliation given. What yields do your investors receive and over what maturity ranges and in what credit way they? To say these okay. conversations change minds, so <laughs> people are really interested. Um, so yeah, as I said earlier, we 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 match the maturities of the MDB, so uh, we can participate in in up to uh, twenty year uh, renewable energy projects. Of course, it's not like a bond. So a lot of people think they are twenty year bonds. No, they're not. They uh, they start repaying very quickly after they're being constructed. So there's a big sort of repayment period. Uh, on these projects, so not, the average life is not 20 years. Now it's getting very technical. Um, and from a risk standpoint, uh, you know, the, the the pension funds I think comes earlier um, do have a, a tolerance to take sub investment grade risk. You know, the, the the purpose why a pension fund is being created to take risk in a responsible manner according to their solvency requirements. Uh, uh, but they're they're they've been created to take risk. They take equity risk very significantly. Uh, and they also can take rates, so uh, we can invest uh, down to B minus sovereign rating uh, to go lower. That's why we've got the partnership with the EBRD and the EU regarding the EBD kinds of operation. But we can replicate that with the other MDBs as well to be able to go to uh, low-income countries and, and more vulnerable countries if there is pipeline there. Um, Odile, one last question to you from Sam, also no affiliation given. Sustainable energy projects are indeed more risky in emerging markets than in OECD countries, but the return is often similar. How can we mobilize much larger resources without pushing the yields up and no subsidies? First of all, I mean, as I, as I was saying, I think the first thing is really to have plans in countries to scale up. And uh, we, you, we've, uh, we've quoted the example of Uzbekistan. In Uzbekistan, the country has really decided, uh, they are very dependent on fossil fuel, but they have really decided to move on and, and, and increase the level of investment in renewable. And then it creates, I mean, there is no problem to finance it. I mean, everybody wants to invest there uh, to finance this gigawatt of, of, of renewable. And we are trying to do the same in Egypt, where they have, uh, we convinced them to um, develop 10 gigawatt of projects, reduce uh, fossil fuel um, uh, production capacity, gas uh, power plant, uh, in order to be able to sell gas and get uh, foreign, uh, foreign exchange revenues. And then you have. If 10 gigawatt of project in Egypt, I'm sure we will find investors uh, interested in um, in doing that because the size is there and, and so forth. So I think this policy priorities is absolutely key, and um, and then we need to have more ILX. <laughs> that seems to be the conclusion of uh, um, our evening's discussion. Well, thank you so much, uh, Odila Manfred. I definitely leave you know more positive, more encouraged uh, you know, with. Particularly with the innovation that you're bringing to this, we may finally see you know more private capital really you know mobilized. Maybe not quite the trillions that we've heard about for a long time, but definitely. One question we didn't answer is: uh, Can we have them accept zero discount rates? But uh, we'll uh, we'll work towards it. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. Um, I think we can leave that for the drinks and nibbles that we're <laughs> going to have next door uh, with the London audience. For the rest of you who are online, thank you very much for joining us tonight. We will uh, have the recording online 
or the next um, couple of days, as is usually the custom at ODI, the appointment for the next uh, iteration of our MDB leader series is for the 20th of June. We will have the president of the Asian Development Bank, Masa Asakawa, um, same time at 6 p.m. in the evening, but we'll uh, send more information in due course. But thank you very much for joining us tonight, and please join me in thanking Manfred and Odiov.